Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. Have you recovered from Christmas yet? No. See, that's the same thing first service said, nothing, which means no. Yeah. Uh, I, it has been a long week. This is my ninth service in eight days, so I am uh, feeling it. We had a wedding earlier this week, which was really fun, but uh, uh, I'm a little bit weary, and I am thankful that God does not grow tired or weary, that when we turn to Him, He is uh, ever strong, and uh, nothing fatigues Him in the least. So uh, I have a couple quick announcements, and then um, we'll pray and dive in here. First of all, I want to thank Kathy Ranby. I think she already escaped. But uh, Kathy Ranby uh, has been helping to administer sort of the organization of our worship. So we have different worship leaders and lots of people who have stepped forward to help out on Sunday mornings. Um, But Kathy has been helping to kind of direct and plan and administer a lot of that. And uh, that's a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of skill, and she has, she's given us both. And uh, I would just ask you, uh, before you leave today, if you can find her, grab her, and say thank you, and just give her some appreciation for her service that she's helped us out with. Um, and then secondly, um, just to let you know, if you had in mind uh, to do any end-of-the-year giving, tomorrow is your deadline. So I uh, just want to let you know about that. Uh, it, needs, it at least needs to be postmarked by tomorrow. So... Uh, If you would pray with me, uh, we'll ask for the Lord's help as we study His Word. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to You. We know that we have uh, no right or privilege to come to You except by Him, uh, except that He has died uh, in our place, taken our sin into Himself, crucified that it would be destroyed in Him, that he would take our sin, that he would give to us the righteousness that he has, that we would be justified before the living God through the work of Christ, and that you give to us your Holy Spirit and seal us in the family of God and minister to us and through us by his power. So we are thankful for the salvation that we have in the triune God. Lord, I pray now that as we study the Holy Spirit this morning, as we think about God with us in the Holy Spirit, that you would help us, that you, by your Spirit, would illuminate the truths of the Scripture, and that you would be our teacher this morning. Uh, Give us clear thoughts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, These past few weeks, we have been kind of working on a three-part series titled God With Us. God with us. And we have been looking at uh, really how a holy God has come near to sinful mankind in the person of Christ to deal with our sin problem. Though man has turned their back against God, God pursued. He did not leave us to our rebellion, but pursued us in the midst of our rebellion uh, that we might know him and that we might be saved. And um, the first way we saw this or we looked at it was in the incarnation, right? We looked at Jesus leaving heaven, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, leaving heaven and coming to earth and taking uh, on to his deity, adding to that humanity, becoming the God-man. And we looked at what the Apostle John had to say in his epistle as he was trying to affirm this for a culture that was doubting or at least questioning the reality of Christ's bodily existence. And he affirmed to them that which was from the beginning, the eternal God, the Son, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning 
the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, would not let this doctrine die, would not let our clear understanding of who Jesus was fall apart. He affirmed his eternal deity and he affirmed his bodily existence that he might be a true sacrifice for mankind's sin. And then Christmas Eve, we looked at not just the incarnation, we looked at the invitation uh, that comes from Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet proclaimed, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And he went on to show us that a son would be born and a ruler would be born who would save people from their sins, one whose origins are from of old. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, would later claim to be that light when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus invites us to repent of sin to receive salvation through his sacrifice and to be brought into his, in his family, adopted as sons and daughters. He, uh, the Apostle John said as much in his gospel, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And this morning we're looking at impartation. So we have... You see, pastors alliterate. That's what we do. We can't help it. Can you imagine how annoying it is at home and around the house? You know, We have the incarnation, the invitation, and now impartation, where God gives to us the Holy Spirit. John said something really fascinating in, the, in his gospel in John chapter 16. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, John 16. Jesus said to his disciples, It is for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good that I'm going away. How could Jesus say that? How could it be good that Jesus would leave planet Earth? That that just doesn't sound right. But what he is going to show his disciples here is that even though he leaves, there will be an an ongoing ministry of God with us because God will impart to believers the Holy Spirit. And he will not just be God with us, but God within us. And that is something truly special. Uh, Back in second grade, um, I fell in love with a game that I still play to this day, and that's basketball. You might have heard me talk about it a little bit. Um, I remember walking across the playground uh, one day, and a a basketball just kind of happened to roll by my feet. I picked it up and just chucked it up at the rim, and I don't remember if it went in or if I hit anything or whatever. But I immediately thought, that was great. And... I just stayed out there all recess, just shooting hoops one after another, and I thought, I could do this all day long. This is fantastic. And uh, anyways, I, we heard there was a, a, a team, a second grade team, and I thought, well, that's, that's good. I'm going to go out for it. And, and uh, of course, at that time, it was all play. You know, if you wanted to, you could. So I got on the team and played and played for a few years, and then I got to sixth grade, and things changed a little bit. And suddenly, it was a little more competitive, and there were tryouts, and uh, there were going to be two teams for our school, uh, and one team, basically an A team and a B team, and one team was going to be the Warriors, and the other team were going to be the Saints. <laughs> Just in case you couldn't tell by the lack of ferocity in the name, 
the Warriors were the A team, right? And the Saints were the B team. And to make a long and painful story short, I made the B team. I'm still recovering from this. Anybody else B team out here? Do we have another B team members? Anybody willing to admit it? A couple of you. So we'll start our support group later. (laughs) Sometimes I think when we consider the Trinity and we consider the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, I think sometimes we consider him to be an inferior member as though he were JV or the B team of the triune Godhead. Kyle Eidelman has captured this um, pretty well for us. He says, sometimes when we read through the Gospels, we read the stories of the disciples following Jesus, and we can't help but to be a little bit envious. What would it have been like to follow Jesus in person? We're glad for the Holy Spirit, but we tend to think of him as being on the JV team of the Trinity. I read that a while back and was convicted by it uh, because I think it does express what a lot of Christians today think about the Holy Spirit. Some of us, especially in conservative circles, maybe are inclined to not think as highly of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, as we ought to. Um, This morning, what I want us to see is that we are not in any way disadvantaged to have the Holy Spirit. In fact, I believe the disciples would have been envious of us. Uh, On the contrary, we're fortunate to have the Holy Spirit. And we need to be reminded that He is not the JV God or B team. We're privileged to have Him. He works powerfully in us and in the world as well. He is no lesser member but co-equal and co-substantial with the Father and the Son. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear in our passage this morning. So in John 16, the context here, the first four verses, are basically Jesus giving some encouragement and assurance to the believers, to the disciples. He's telling them, hey, actually, uh, persecution is coming your way. You're going to be put out of the synagogue, the only church you've ever known. Your lives are going to be in disarray. You're going to be pursued. You're going to be threatened. And if that weren't enough, then he announces to them that he's leaving. And because of these disappointing statements in such rapid succession, here he offers his disciples encouragement that they needed. So in verse 5, if you'll follow along with me, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is good for you. It is, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Boy, that last line could be stated by any pastor, right? I got lots more to say, but more than you can bear right now. What I want you to hear strongly this morning, the primary point, if you don't hear anything else, is this. 
we're not disadvantaged to lose Jesus' earthly presence and to be given the Holy Spirit. That's not to our disadvantage. I'll be honest with you. I would, I would have a hard time just saying that to you, except that Jesus said it. Because it just doesn't sound right. And that's your first point in your outline here. It is good that Jesus left and gave the Holy Spirit. As long as Jesus was on earth in bodily form, his ministry was going to be localized. Uh, and it would be sort of impossible for him to communicate with all disciples in all the world at all times. Uh, therefore, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, uh, this would allow for a wider and more powerful ministry as he indwells believers and equips them for what he's calling them to do. I think you can see the significance of the change of, of Jesus being on earth to the Holy Spirit being in disciples uh, just with that simple change of preposition. Jesus was with us. The Holy Spirit is within us. And so one of the specific privileges to having the Holy Spirit is his broader and more universal ministry. Again, co-equal, co-substantial with the Father and with the Son. Uh, but he is not a newbie to this thing. The Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit of God. Don't you hate it when you go to a, a restaurant and the, the server comes out and says, you'll have to excuse me, this is my first week on the job. You know, and you immediately think, oh no, I'm going to get rotten service. My food's going to be wrong. I have no confidence here whatsoever. But this is not the Holy Spirit's first week on the job. Something else that I find remarkable about the Holy Spirit is that you and I are indwelt by the same Spirit of God. You don't have your own personal Holy Spirit, and I have mine. But the same Holy Spirit of God indwells each of us. And I think sometimes what that creates is just this sense of recognition. Sometimes you'll meet somebody and just being around them, even not knowing them well, you think, wow, there's something about you. Uh, it is almost as though we're family. It's like we're cut from the same cloth. There's a familiarity about you. And I think uh, what we're recognizing in them is not just values, but we're recognizing the same Holy Spirit of God in them. It's like we're family because we're family, family of God. Now, this passage that we're looking at here, I, I think Jesus introduces to us really three spheres of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There is the, the sphere of the world at large, and then the sphere of within the disciples, and then there is this ministry of the Holy Spirit that points to Christ himself. So I want you to sort of pay attention to those three spheres as we work through this, to the world at large, within disciples, and to Christ himself. And so the first sphere that we're looking at here is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. This is one of the few places in the scriptures where we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world at large. And I think Christians oftentimes think of the Holy Spirit as sort of our private privilege, something that we as Christians have, and that's, there's some truth to that. But here we see that he has a ministry, in fact, to the whole world. There is something he is doing in each person's life, namely the work of conviction. Now, the 2011 version of the NIV, which I'm using this morning, uses the phrase, prove the world to be wrong. Uh, other translations use the word conviction, and I'm going to use conviction just for uh, brevity. But the Greek word here for conviction or for this phrase is elenko, and it's a legal word. In other words, the Holy Spirit is like a prosecuting attorney for the world at large, 
bringing forth evidence to show that before God, they're guilty of sin. He is bringing an awareness of one's sinfulness that cannot be excused, that they would know, yes, I am a sinner. He is producing guilt in people's lives. Uh, Now, this might not be delightful news, (laughs) but I think for the Christian, there's actually comfort in this. To know that this is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. Because we see people around us steeped in sin and thinking they're getting away with it. And I think it's a comfort to know God is at work in their hearts and lives. And he is bringing a measure of conviction about what they're doing. Even if they won't let us know about it or let us know that they feel that, we're assured that that is what's happening. That is the work of the Spirit of God upon the world at large. Amy and I were talking just last night, in fact, about how your best intentions to try to share the gospel with people, especially in America, can be really difficult because sometimes it seems people think, well, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm not as bad as someone else, and they don't have this strong dependence, and they seem to have their lives somewhat in order, and you just get the feeling that, man, unless God does a work in their heart, there ain't nothing that's going to change them, you know? And the assurance in this passage is God is at work acting upon them to bring about conviction of sin and a need to be right with God. And I think that should produce some comfort in us, especially for those of us who have loved ones, sons, daughters, parents, spouses, siblings that don't yet know the Lord. And we're thinking, man, how can I make it clear? What can I do? How can I say it more dramatically, better, clearer, whatever, more convincingly? The assurance is that the Holy Spirit of God is working on their life, producing in them godly grief for sin so that they would know their need for Christ. And so that's the first area. He convicts the world of sin. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you here. Uh, there are times when we as your pastors, I'm going to let you in on sort of uh, inside the pastor's uh, office as we come together and, and pray for you guys. Sometimes one of the things we pray for for you is conviction and godly grief that the Holy Spirit would um, convince you of things that you need to repent of. Uh, And we do this because we know that we're not going to produce that sense in you. It's not from the pastor wagging their finger or for, uh, you know, a parental guilt trip that people's lives are going to seriously change from the inside out. But we pray specifically when we learn of something that we know you're doing that's an act of disobedience, we pray that God would produce godly grief in your heart. And I'm comforted to see that this is, in fact, what God is doing through his Holy Spirit. In fact, the scriptures, I think, teach us that even the most avowed atheist, even the hardest heart against the Lord, carries around with them an uneasy conscience about their life. Romans tells us this in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But more than just recognizing that there is a God or must be a God by virtue of seeing the natural world and God's creation... I think in Romans, Paul tells us that there is a specific internal sense of morality, of right and wrong, and a conscience problem. And Romans 2.15 says that they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, 
their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. God the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts and minds of the world at large to do what C.S. Lewis or to bring what C.S. Lewis calls the inescapable sense that one is guilty before God. Now those may not be pleasant words, but that is the heart change that every person needs to have to be right with God. And the assurance we have here is the Holy Spirit is producing that. It is also why the old proverb, and Pastor Adam reminds me of this one a lot, a gentle word can break a bone. It's why that's true. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in people's hearts and minds. And we need to be those who uh, are sharing the truth and are carriers of the truth, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to press that down deeply uh, to produce heart change. Probably every one of you in the room could identify a particular time when the Holy Spirit of God took a piece of truth and drove it deep into your heart that produced repentance and a real sincere heart change. For me, the most prominent time that I can think of was back when I was a sophomore in college at Biola University. And um, most of you probably know this, but I grew up in a missionary home. And uh, we lived in Southern California. My dad worked with an organization called the Navigators that ministered on military bases and college campuses. And um, we, we just, we were poor. That's just, you know, we were just poor. That's how it was. And uh, I was um, scholarshiped to go to a private Christian school. And there was a lot of wealthy kids in that school. And I felt like their wealth was very much in my face. And it was kind of an issue for me as a kid. In fact, I'll, I remember one individual in particular. Diego Rasa <laughs> was the big man on campus as a senior. His car that his parents got for him was a red Cadillac Alante convertible for their 17, 18-year-old son. Anyways, all that to say, this was a bit of a rough spot for me, feeling poor in a wealthy school, having been on the B team back in sixth grade. (laughs) I had some insecurities. And when I went to college, um, I had two very carnal goals, to be well-known and well-paid. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say that's what they were, but that's what they were. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to live, I don't want to work hard in obscurity, and I certainly didn't want to be poor like I, f- I felt like we were. And so I thought, well, I'm, that's it. I'm going to go in pre-med. I don't even like medicine. I just think that'll pay. So, <laughs> um, And one day I was sitting in chapel uh, on the gymnasium floor at Biola, and Clyde Cook, the president, was speaking that day. And Clyde Cook, is, if you know anything about him, he's not the most charismatic fellow. He's just pretty plain. He's funny, but he's, he's just an ordinary guy. But he loves the Lord. He was a humble man, and he was faithful to the Word of God. And he was speaking that day from 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, which says, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It was the most piercing moment of conviction I've ever felt. And it was not because Clyde Cook stood up there and pounded on a pulpit and beat on us. It was because he humbly and gently let the word of God speak 
And the Holy Spirit took the truth and drove it deep into my heart and convicted me of what I knew were very carnal desires. Um, in my mind's eye, it was like I can see like two helium balloons, well-known, well-paid. And it was like God the Holy Spirit took a needle and just popped each one and showed me really the foolishness and the sinfulness of my desires. And, um, and I sat there on the floor, you know, as a college kid, just weeping and very, very remorseful um, for what I had um, picked up and taken before the Lord in that way. And I remember walking out, walking across the threshold of the gymnasium out into the courtyard beyond, and I remember praying, God, if, if you have something for me to do in your kingdom, I'll do it, and I'll go wherever you want me to go. And I should have said, Hawaii would be nice. But <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> um, what I mean to say is that I have experienced that work of the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin. And I'm certain you have too. And it is not our job to produce conviction in the lives of others. It is our job to be carriers of the truth and ambassadors for Christ in word and deed. But the Holy Spirit is quite frankly better at it than you and I are. We should be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, plainly and humbly. I love what Spurgeon has a great line speaking of just the gently laying up of Scripture. He calls it letting the lion out. If we're the ones roaring, it doesn't get heard. But when God, the Holy Spirit, speaks through his word, there's a lion let loose. And we want to do that. That's our job. So the Holy Spirit is working upon the world to produce a conviction for sin. And he is also convicting the world of righteousness. This sounds funny, but it's really the flip side of the same coin. Just as light exposes darkness and exposes sin, exposes misdeeds, so light also illuminates and shows us that which is true and right and good. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the righteous character of our God so that nobody can say or be satisfied with, well, I'm a little bit better than they are. And our consciences by the Holy Spirit tells us that's not enough. I'm going to be judged based upon how I respond to Jesus Christ and his righteous life lived on my behalf. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, but he also convicts us of righteousness so that we see our lives just as I did sitting on the gymnasium floor. These goals are sinful and foolish. I see them in light of the pure character and nature of God. He has something else for me. Thirdly here, he convicts the world of judgment. If you skip down to verse 11, it says, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The word condemned here is in the perfect tense, which means that this sentence is given to the devil and is fixed and permanent. It's set. It means that God has already defeated Satan through the death and resurrection of Christ. He's already sentenced him. He just simply has yet to lock him away. And what delays and stays his hand is, quite frankly, God's patience for some 
to respond to his gospel, maybe even some of you. All of these points here, once again, what we're meant to see is we're meant, this is meant to be encouragement to the disciples who are facing Jesus' departure, feeling like they're going to be alienated and abandoned in the midst of persecution, and he is quite frankly telling them, you're not just here circling the drain, guys. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. It's good that I'm going because he's going to work powerfully in the world and in you. You can be assured that he will be ministering a sense of personal sin, perfect righteousness, and certain judgment. That's his job. You're my ambassadors. You're my ambassadors. The second sphere of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've seen the first sphere is in the world at large. The second sphere here is uh, to disciples themselves. The Holy Spirit will guide disciples into all truth. And I should offer this caveat here. This is not an exhaustive message on the Holy Spirit. Couldn't do it in one Sunday. Uh, you wouldn't like me if I tried. Uh, this is, we're just dealing with this one passage. But uh, whereas the first sphere is his work to the world at large, the second sphere is his work to guide disciples into all truth. Look at verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This is one of those passages that is very often misread, misunderstood by Christians today. What we tend to do is take this verse right out of context, imagine as though it were written to our immediate context, and apply it in some strange ways about the Holy Spirit telling us the future and and such. I will remind you of the phrase that I use a lot. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. It was written to others before us. Until we understand what it's saying to them, we can't understand what it's saying to us. This is written to disciples facing Jesus' departure, wondering what on earth they were going to do without him. His comfort was that the Holy Spirit would come and give to them the yet-to-be-written scriptures which would guide them into the truth. That's what this is meaning here. And so we are assured here of his truthful guidance. Again, they're getting ready to to lose the living word of God, Jesus Christ incarnate. So he assures them what is coming is the enduring and written word of God. And that's what he would use to direct and to guide them into all truth, especially the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, bringing to mind and guiding with the word of God. Secondly, we are assured that he speaks in solidarity with the triune God. In other words, we can trust his message. Here in this this passage, I think we get a really beautiful picture of how the triune God works in concert and interdependence with one another. The Father sends the Son. In love, he sends the Son. The Son gives up his life departs heaven and comes to earth to be a sacrifice. He then departs earth and sends the Spirit. The Spirit draws attention back to Christ so that mankind can be reconciled to the Father. Each member operating in deference to the other for our salvation. And it's really a beautiful picture. So the encouragement here for disciples is that the Spirit of God is not going to arrive on the scene with some different program and go sideways on us. There will be continuity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on the same mission, and that is the redemption of souls. And so as a modern New Testament Christian, as the Holy Spirit guides us today, we can be assured he is going to guide us specifically in consistent ways with the Scriptures. They are the primary tool that he uses in our lives. Uh, In fact, this is a test that I think we are to apply not only for our own sense of guidance, but even as others talk to us. Uh, Sometimes people will come up to me and they will say, and I, I, I sort of cringe when I hear these words, God told me. Oh, man, I kind of take a step back and wait for the lightning to strike or whatever. You know, I, I get concerned about this. I don't mean to say, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to say that God doesn't speak today. But when one declares, God told me, they're, they're claiming like the mantle of a prophet. And in the scriptures, when the prophet was wrong, do you know what happens? They get stoned. And I wish, I wish Christians who absolutely believe and trust in the Holy Spirit and are indwelt by him would simply just be a little more gentle about your words. It seems to me the Spirit is leading me such. It seems to me that the Spirit is communicating that I need to whatever. Just to, let's not be quite so bold about that. Uh, I think this is an example of using the Lord's name in vain. When we hear that phrase, using the Lord's name in vain, we just kind of think somebody saying, OMG. Using the Lord's name in vain is invoking his name upon what I declare to be true, whether it may be or may not be. So let's just be a little careful about this. Uh, I'll give you some examples. God told me to leave my wife. I've heard this. No, no, he didn't. God told you to love your wife, right? You heard wrong. (laughs) God told me my drug use was fine. A bit of liberty. No, no. God told you that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, what we believe God to be telling us must be contrasted against what the scriptures say. Any good carpenter has a couple of uh, indispensable tools, the plumb line, the level, the carpenter's square to make sure that everything that is built is consistent and in line. And whatever we believe we are hearing from the Holy Spirit of God must be squared with the word of God. He will not say something new. He will say only that which he has been told, which we have been told in the scriptures. We have assurance that he has told us all we need to know. Not all we want to know, right? Aren't there times where you go, boy, God, could you just tell me what's around the bend over here? Because that next season is really uh, unclear to me. (laughs) Uh, I think it's the grace of God that he doesn't tell us too much, to be honest. If we knew what was coming ahead of us or the consequences of some of our decisions, I think we would implode. I think mystery is an act of God's grace, but that's a whole other That's a whole other sermon. We're assured that he has told us what we need to know. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. Again, this yet to come is not that the Holy Spirit is going to be a future teller for you. Merrill Tenney clarifies this for us. In this promise lies the germinal authority of the apostolic writings which transmit the revelation of Christ through his disciples by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, hey, disciples, 
I'm not going to be here for you. It's okay. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to empower you and inspire you to write what will then be the scriptures, which will be the guide for all believers. Scriptures don't speak on their own. The Holy Spirit speaks through them, but they are a guide. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we're encouraged that we receive the Holy Spirit's help in understanding what the revelation God has already given means. Jesus prays this for his disciples, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. This is one of the reasons that I have grown to love A.W. Tozer. He is not just a great writer, but he was a man, albeit conservative and evangelical, who had a robust understanding of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, It is said of him that he could often be found in his study with the Bible, open, face down, face touching the pages, praying that the Holy Spirit would give him understanding of the text. And that is a man I want to follow. To believe firmly in the Holy Spirit and to square it with the text. That's the life I want to live right there. Last point here, we're looking at the third sphere. So we've seen the sphere of the Holy Spirit's work upon the world, in the lives of believers. And the last one here is we are assured that the Holy Spirit will bring glory and honor to Christ. Verse 14, he will glorify me. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come, he'll glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I have said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a while you will see me again. Boy, Jesus, we look forward to seeing you again. I think in many cases in the world today, in Christian circles, we have um, an instance of what I will call charismania. Now, I am not bashing charismatics. Uh, We have charismatics in this church here. God bless you. You're welcome. I love that you're here. But there are some places where the charisma has (laughs) gone out of bounds. People claiming to see angel dust in their services and angel feathers falling around them. Just kind of nutty things, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, And I think what we find here is on some of these circles is an imbalanced fascination with the Holy Spirit or supposed phenomenon. And this concerns me because what the Spirit or what Jesus says here is that the Spirit is going to give attention to. Christ. The Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. In fact, he's been often referred to as the self-effacing member of the Trinity. Now, to be fair, in conservative churches such as our own, we can be guilty of something too, right? In conservative churches, sometimes Trinity means Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is omitted altogether. But here, I think we get a, a good clarification Yes, the Holy Spirit is alive and well. And what is his primary ministry? To bring honor and glory to Christ. You want to see a church where the Holy Spirit is alive and well? The evidence will not be sensationalism. It will be the centrality of Jesus Christ. It will be that people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That they'll be growing more and more like him in word and deed. That they will demonstrate Christ-like love for their neighbors as Christ commanded. 
it will be that people who follow him will become winsome and gentle ambassadors for Christ. That is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. So he works in these three spheres, upon the world at large, guiding in the lives of believers through the word, and he will be drawing attention to Christ Jesus, honoring him. That is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though you are not here, though Christ is not bodily on earth, the Holy Spirit of God is not just God with us, but God within us. Sealing us in the family of God, ministering to us in guidance and assurance and drawing honor to Christ. And we, as your disciples who love you and love the gospel that has rescued us, are assured that you are at work in the lives of those around us, producing guilt for sin and drawing them to a saving knowledge of yourself. So we ask, Lord, that we would walk by the Spirit in our lives, allowing you to do your work in us and trusting you to do your work in those we love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.